Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Locked In With. Today my guest is Gain Styles, the Artistic Director of Theatre Nanook. Hi Gain, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Kieran? You alright? Yeah, good. Coping with um, lockdown and everything. <laughs> Trying to keep myself busy. Um, so, have uh, you been working from home the last few days? Uh, we've been working from home. This is our second week for Nanorg to be working remotely. Yeah, so we're all zooming in and WhatsApping every morning. Um, just you know, basically trying to keep focused on the shows that are going to be coming up. You know, it's really important that we've got mm-hmm. shows ready to go. Um, once we get out of this, so yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's not dropping the ball while this is all happening. And making yeah. sure that when we come out to this, that you know what you're doing, so that you've got those two shows, which we're going to talk about, that they're kind of ready to go. When, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think the other thing, the other big concerning thing, and I think it's been a bit of a, a little bit of an eye-opener for everybody, is the fact that there's so many freelancers out there. Like, I just heard, just before we came on air now, um, the BBC are going to... Um, the news is that the government's going to pay 80% of freelancers' wages, mm. which I think is such a relief for all those amazing creatives that, you know, we get to work with, that they're going to be okay, you know? And that mm. has been a huge concern for us. Um, because that's, we forget how important they are, which is, yeah. you know... That's yeah. fantastic news, but it should have been announced two weeks ago. You know, I know, that... that yeah. The concern and the worry that people, you know, amongst everything else, you know, people have got mortgages to pay, they've got, and especially things like, you know, if you've got two creatives, two actors with a mm. family, you know, that must have been so scary. Um, and you, we really need to value these people because without it, there, there is no art. And that mm. is really important that we remember that. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to start for this. I wanted to start at the beginning, really, for you and your career. Like, mm-hmm. um, how did you first get interested in theatre? Was theatre something that was accessible to you as a girl from Merthyr, a girl from the Valleys? Um, I probably went to the theatre um, to pantomime. My mum would take me to Swansea Grand. And I see Stan Stenner, so that's probably the like proper theatre then. Um, apart from that, there was no theatre in Merthyr, but I did go to chapel. So for me, chapel was the place where I got to perform. I did recitation, adrov, singing, and in, you know, canyon Nigal. I did all that. Did all the Eisteddfods. So that for me was the performing element of it. Um, Santa's Tidville was the first was the Welsh school, one of the first Welsh schools in the Valleys. And so my mum and dad, who weren't Welsh-speaking, were part of the PTA to get that school up on its feet. So my mum would be in theatre shows. And so I would sit in the dressing room, sit aside the stage and just watch them rehearse and things like that. So I think, actually, that's where the, the love of it came from, yeah. And was it performing first? For me, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I used to do impressions of Frank Spencer and, um, my, you know, I used to do all that sort of nonsense, you know, get up on the chair in the corner, entertain the family, you know, 
now I just think I, I, I didn't really enjoy it but I just knew that I could do it yeah. so it was a way of me um, currying favour then I suppose really yeah. um, with, with the family so yeah I used to do all of that nonsense yeah Was there a moment for you when it went um, from being just an interest to you looking at it as something that you could do potentially as a career? Um, do you know what? I suppose when I got to comprehensive school, drama was a massive focus in our comp in Rydvelin. Um, and we were taken to see an awful lot of theatre shows in London, you know. So for me, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is, you can actually make a career out of this. And actually, that's what I saw was a professional theatre company. That was very mm. important for me. Um, so yeah, I would say about 13, 14, doing drama at all level, that's when I thought, oh, actually, this I could... I could be an actress, um, but I had horrendous stage fright, absolutely mm. petrified. So one year I got to do stage management in the school play, and I just thought, oh, this is it, this is it, this is this is the future for me because I absolutely loved that. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 about fourteen, fifteen years old, mm. I thought I, I'd like to make this a career. And you studied stage management at Royal Welsh, did you? Yeah, it wasn't called Royal Welsh then. It was just the Welsh College of Music and Drama. Oh. I was really lucky. <laughs> yeah, I was really years ago. I was really lucky to get a place there. Um, and it was I had a fantastic lecturer called Dave Edwards, who's you know was inspirational because mm. he his knowledge of theatre was fantastic and so you just wanted to conjure up that magic all the time um, and his, his, his eye for detail on why things were the way they were in theatre, how you why you laid a floor cloth out that way why flats were the way they were, you know, flying all those lovely mechanisms within theatre that I loved um, and so yeah, I was really lucky to have him as a lecturer really, yeah and I suppose that attention to detail as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like there's there was a there was a purpose, there was a reason for everything. Um, the little traditions within it. I wish that I'd had the opportunity to work in rep. Um, I you know all my career has been in Wales, and so there's not really a rep system here. I would have absolutely loved to have done that because just to get to know all those little traditions I suppose um, I love history so for me the history of theatre uh, mm. is, is is something that I love so I would have been in my element with stuff like that yeah and um, it, when you were on your stage management degree at um, the Worth College um, did you start exploring directing at that point? Um, I don't know. I think it was earlier than that. I done. I I used to watch a lot of films as a kid, and I would be very aware of where the director was in relation to what was on the screen. Right. Really aware of that. I was really aware, and I used to watch my drama teacher direct shows. Um, and then when I got when we was doing O level, I had to. I think one of the parts of the exam was you had to write, from a director's point of view, a, a play of your choice. And so I chose A Child's Christmas in Wales, and I put a revolve in there, um, which is, I think, every director's mistake, because a revolve can only go one way, it goes round and round, mm. boring. But, you know, <laughs> as an all-level, I thought, oh, I was the kid you like. So yeah. then I had an eye for placing people in a space to tell a story. I, I, I was quite mm. you know, key on that, really. Was it quite easy for you to visualise things, taking things from a script to a stage? Yeah, I, I think when I first started, my first directing 
job. I I thought you had to be really clever. <laughs> this is going to sound really bad now. But you had to be really knowledgeable about world drama and things like that. And really, I don't think you do. You know, obviously it's great to have as much knowledge as you possibly can. But you just look at the page and what does that page conjure for you? What does it conjure up? What do you see? So it's it's that for me. It's as basic as that. Um, it's like reading a book, isn't it? When you read mm. a book, you, you visualise that whole world and it's exactly the same with the script for me. Um, I don't try and be too clever with it. You know, I take what the script says and I try and um, emulate that on, on, on a stage. And it's, I guess then it's all about interpretation, your interpretation. Are you thinking... Are you trying to balance that with the writer's intention? If it's not a script that you've written, you kind of... Yeah, I, I like to... It's, it's funny, actually. One of the very first shows I did, um, I worked with David Llewellyn um, on a play. I think it was his first play called Spam Man. It won the Ice Edward Drama Prize. Right. And... I a, it was really important that I spoke a lot to him, what his intention was, what he saw. You sort of almost get, have to get under the skin of the writer, really, and to find out what makes them tick. Why did he write that play? What was, you know, what was all that? But then you almost have to leave that to one side because you have to interpret his, his words. And it was the same when I did Side with Rosie. I went to meet James Rousseavans. James Rousseavans. Yeah, James Rose Evans, who adapted Side with Rosie um, in Hampstead Theatre years and years and years ago. I went up to London to meet him, and he was so lovely about his adaptation. So, of course, it's Laurie Lee's book, but yeah. I, was, I wasn't working from Laurie Lee's book, I was working from his play. So, right. you know, the adaptation thing is really interesting because you're just going at what James Rose Evans, what has he taken out of that book that he thinks is worthy to be adapted, um, and that's a different thing again. Then, yeah. Yeah, and how how he's created that adaptation, he will he must be highlighting certain things that he thinks are important within that original text, and then I guess you, as a director, have to see what he's highlighting and kind of reflect that on stage. Yeah, and I think this is sort of. Especially with that particular show, the f it's the focus of the mother in that play, in that book, Laurie Lee's mother. All love and all attention revolves around her, and so you make her then the pivot for the show. Mm -hmm. um, but that's something like it's almost like subconscious in a way. You're not sort of going, oh, "Who's the key character here?" You know, it's not that. It's like right. who. Who emulates that love that, that 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 family had for this woman, you know? And she was she was you know a, a very complex character, you know, who could who could go off on flights of fancy and then was like, you know, in some respect, you probably say she, she suffered from bipolar to some right. extent. But she was you know, she was bringing up, I think it was eight kids, um, you know, at a time of the turn of the century in a rural area. You're trying to try and think what that must have been like for that woman, um. Yeah, so it, it was, it, you know, it's, it's not stated in any of the writing, or the mother is the key part here, but that's how it came out in in James Rousseavans' adaptation for me. You know, okay. somebody else took it, they yeah. may pick up Laurie Lee as the main character, he is the narrator in it, but it's his love for his mother that em, emanates right through that, that yeah. piece. Um, yeah, it's... Again, about perspective, and everyone, whoever's going to adapt that piece, or yeah. is going to have a different perspective on what they think is important. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, I'd I want to talk about um, your writing. How did you start writing? Did you write when you were younger, when you were in school? Yeah, I think I've always written. I loved, I loved, I loved using a pen. So basically, I love handwriting. I would copy books, textbooks out. I just, I just love writing. 
the actual mm. mechanism of it. My dad then at Christmas time one year bought me a typewriter with a ribbon on it and it was the time I think I might have read uh, Little Women. So Joe, the character in Little Women, she writes books. So then I had this fantasy of becoming a novelist. I think a lot of girls who read Little Women all want to be Joe and they all want to write books. So, you know, there was, there was something about that. But I loved murder mysteries. I loved reading. So I just wanted to, you know, write my own stories. I wrote my own stories Oh you know, from a very, very young age. I love writing. <laughs> and, and <laughs> I love it. When, when did you first think about writing a play in that kind of form? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think I started writing plays very, very young because I had an older brother and a cousin who I used to like bossing around, and so we would do plays, you know, and so yeah. I would give them parts to read and things like that. Um, so that was very, very early on as well. I think that comes from performing at chapel and things, but um, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know. I do it now because it's my job. Right. You know, I'm very lucky, I'm very lucky, aren't I? You know, I get to direct um, shows, but and I get to write and direct. Um, when I first started with that company, with Nanorg, the I was a stage manager, and the company of actors devised all the work. Right. So they were all writers, they were all actors. And that was amazing, because the talent in the room was quite, in, you know, it was quite, in, and they wrote songs as well. You know, wow. Manny and Sarah Harris Davis, Gwyn Vaughan and uh, Rhys Perry Jones, and then with Johan Heavin was there, but Tim Baker, he he coordinated all of that, and that was as a director and a writer. Was he? Was outstanding. Was he the artistic director at that time? Yeah, he was the artistic director when I came in to be a stage manager. So watching that, you know, you, you had a room where four actors were given a scene and they would just write and you would just go in the room and it'd be all of them typing yeah. away it's like a typing pool <laughs> and then they'd come back together and read the scenes together it was a you know you know as a creative process i wasn't part of that because obviously i was the stage manager yeah. but I, I i could see it working and then when i came to be director there they had all gone so there were no <laughs> writing rooms it was just me looking at past plays that they'd done right. and then starting the process of either writing my own or commissioning writers in mm. and mm. it was a tough act to follow i've got to say did, did you feel intimidated when you first got the oh no, no job? yes yeah absolutely these were very funny funny people mm. very witty very intelligent people and so you know, you have to keep up, basically. Mm. Um, I, when you, having experienced working with Nanook, um, before you became AD, um, you spoke about there being some deal of pressure. Was it difficult to kind of make that job your own initially? Oh, yeah. It's really hard because you, you know, I, I love all types of theatre. Um, one of my favourite, you know, I made a massive error very early on. I wanted to do Skylight um, by David Hare, like, like the most, like, it's a perfectly written script. So you didn't have to do anything to it. It just, it just runs off the page. It's, it's brilliant. But the audiences that Nanog had were, they didn't want to see David Hayes' political dramas. Mm -hmm. They weren't interested. And I made the error of thinking the plays that I like are going to be the plays that my audiences like. And that's not necessarily the case. And so I learned very early on that you can't have vanity projects. 
You right. have to think of your audience all the time. Um, it's it's vital. Was Nano very much a TIE company at that point? Um, yeah, it's sort of it, it, it's weird actually because when I went there, the company did a lot of grown-up theatre and TIE. So I think there was two right. community shows and two and one TIE show every year. So when I came in, there was a change of policy within the Arts Council, and they wanted us to revert just purely on theatre and education. Which was fine because that is what I came in on, was the TIE work, and it was astonishing. The quality of writing, set, design, lighting, acting, everything was like, this is like grown-up theatre, this isn't children's theatre. The children were, the audience were, held with such respect you know there's no dumbing down there wasn't it wasn't silly theater it was serious issues um and i was like and i was really it was like i think kids came for like 50p well you know i know it's like a normal back in time now and things but even then i was thinking oh my god again all of this quality you know and i tried to keep that going that that is really important that it's accessible to all kids mm. it's and it's it's as good as any theater that you would see anywhere in the world it has to have that quality to it but i suppose that was at a time where every county in wales had a tie company when there was a tradition of theater and education in wales yeah. but but we've lost that would you agree that that's gone for the most part now because of a lack of funding yeah I think it's because I was you know I was very much part of that transition for when the local authorities went from I think it's eight isn't it to 22 mm-hmm. you know I was, I was around at that time I was then director when those companies lost the funding in those areas uh it was a really difficult time because now and it's funny because i was in meetings where people were saying once they go they're never going to come back and those children won't have access to theater of this quality i was part of um i would say that i being a young person and inexperienced at that time didn't really see the impact of that coming. Right. And I feel there's a little bit of guilt that I feel that actually we should have listened to those people who have been around for a long time and listened to what they had to say because what they saw happening has come to fruition. There are schools that have no theatre um Sorry, my, <laughs> and there's no and um, has no theatre in education. I have no theatre. You know, there 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 are there are areas of Wales that have no access to theatre at all. Um, and I think that's a sad state of affairs. And weirdly, it was the jewel in the crown because if you if you look to other countries, they all they all say, "Oh God, I can't believe that you had all these each area at their own theatre company." For children, for schools. Was that not a thing? Was that not a thing in England or Scotland or? In England, they was they were TIE companies were associated to, um, theatres. So like Coventry Belgrade, where it all started. Yeah. You know, the old Leeds Playhouse would have a TIE, more you know, attached to it. But what we had was locally authority run, theatres specifically for children. Which is, wow. Creating original new work for children and young people. Yeah, yeah. Edu- yeah. Um, which was fun, but, you know, that's never going to happen. We're never going to have that again. Do you think that we'll ever, on that scale, 
Did you see a fertility time where children get that level of access to the arts in that way through TRE? I don't know. It would have to be the. It would have to be a real shift in funding to local authorities to enable that. I think. Um, yeah. And that can only come personally if we get independence from Westminster, and that we really, if we really yeah. are serious about children accessing the creative, creative arts like that curriculum wants them to do, then money has to come back into schools and has to come back into local authorities to enable them to mm. really do that justice. Because you can't have a curriculum which wants to do all these amazing things if the schools haven't got the ability to enforce to that. that. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> completely agree with you. Um, I'd, I'd like to move on. I'd like, to yeah, talk, on. I'd like to talk about your process as a director and um, how, how you work as a director, what your process is in the room. Do you have a set process or does it kind of vary from play to play? No, I'm quite... Uh, I'm very <laughs> structured based really. So I will... I, I break the play down into sections. I schedule how I'm going to do that I look at the sections and I think that's going to take me in the first week that'll probably take me an hour to do that section mm. I schedule it all out timetable it all out I stick to that timetable because I know that I have to finish to get ready for the tech and the dress and I have to open at a certain time so I do not leave anything open to you know I've got no you know I do have contingencies within that timetable but I stick to that timetable really really mm. rigidly um i block first i block really quickly i can block the whole play in the week so wow. that actors know where they gotta go i do not sit down and go through text i do not do that sometimes we'll get we'll come across something and we're going oh my god what does this mean like obviously if i'm the writer in the room i'll tell them exactly what it means yeah. but if i have the writer in the room then and we're we're pouring over the, the script, we then will sit down and try and, if we're stuck on a scene, we'll sit down and we'll try and navigate our way through it. But otherwise, I block very, very quickly in the first half. And then I, it's almost like, um, Med Barker told me this, it's like sculpting or sculpture. You've got your big block of marble and you just hone it down, hone it down, yeah. hone it down until you hopefully have something that's lovely to look at at the end of it. But, uh, has that process uh, worked every time in terms of... <laughs> uh, mm. Or did it take time to kind of find I, something that worked? I, yeah, no, the actors that I work with normally enjoy... I think they do. I think they like the idea that they're up on their feet, they're doing something, and they're trying to find... Mm. Because what happens sort of like in the in sort of week two, you'll have actors going to you, oh, do you know what, I'm thinking now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come in from that area because I think it'll make work better for the blocking. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, great. They will always come up with better lines than the stuff that I've written. They will always be funnier. So you've got to give an actor the space to do that. So if they're yeah. worrying, oh my God, oh my God, I don't even know where I'm going to be standing on the stage and we're just pouring over the script. I'd much rather give them the freedom to come up with the goods, really. And then I suppose they're more relaxed in rehearsal and on stage. Do you find yeah, that? I think, yeah, I think the more that they can feel confident, if you have an actor going, I am going to clear what I'm doing here, you've got to solve that quickly. You've got to go, right, what's the matter? What's the problem? You know, if they go on stage in the opening night and they're thinking... And also, you've got to give them some credit, like, they are performers and they do love it, and sometimes they've got to solve those problems themselves. Mm. You know, if I haven't given them, sometimes you can spoon-feed actors. Some actors are like, oh, do you know what, leave it with me and I'll, I'll work it out, you know. Mm. You know, and that's what note sessions are about then. You know, once you do a run-through, something that you may have said to them 
in week one and you go, oh, actually, I'm wrong there. I think it's this. And then they go, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's why the note sessions are really valuable. Yeah. And, and then it kind of builds from there. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about I have the Storm next. Ah, okay. So, uh, how did that project come about, and how did you decide to write this play? Yeah, the project has come up from lots of different areas. I was doing a workshop, drama workshop, with young carers, mm. and, you know, I was, like, amazed. And I think I've said this a few times, you know, I just, I wasn't aware of young carers, and I just thought their story is so emotive and needs to be told. But they always felt, when I was speaking to them, that they're like, yeah, we know our story. And I was thinking, yeah, you know your story. It's, we don't. The society doesn't know your story. And therefore, we can't help you because we don't know what you're dealing with. We've got no idea what you're dealing with. No. And a lot of young carers are very shy and introverted because they don't want people to know what they have to deal with. So the more we can tell their story, I think it's much better now. But that was that was one of the things. The other thing as well is is that, you know, I come from Earth Tidville. You know, if you see Earth Tidville on the news, it's always represented in a really, like, deprived, poor area. You know, the people I know from Earth there are very funny, uh, forward-thinking, you know, and people of the valleys are like that for me as well. They, they, they're resourceful, mm. they're intelligent, they're articulate people. And so I'm thinking, why don't we see that? You know, yeah, you've got all, t- you know, types of people. You know, I know, I know, I get that, but I don't want to see that. I want to see my valley represented in a really positive light. Because we've seen in stuff like Stella, um, they're almost caricatured. Yeah, you know we've all got that you know we've all got those people who like say you know ridiculous things i know that and i know but they but for me we're we're fighting a generation of young people who have no or or we think have no aspiration Mm. and no ambition i think that's wrong we have to instill in them that if they want to change the world if they have an incredible idea that will save the planet then off you go. Yeah. Off you go and do that, you know. Um, so it was a lot about that for me as well, I the storm. Um, I wanted, at the time, there wasn't many, there were, <clears throat> a lot of young girls were not taking STEM subjects. Teachers mm-hmm. were telling me, we've got a real problem. We need something that can stimulate that. And so I thought, well, what if you had a young carer? Because originally it was going to be a young boy. Right. But it was going to be a boy that was going to be, and then I had that information from teachers, and I thought, right, okay, let's make it about a young girl who is brilliant at science, and she, you have to give her an obstacle. How can she, you know, how can she overcome these obstacles? And a great obstacle is being a young carer. Yeah. So that those things tied in really. And she's a really interesting character because of how driven she is and she's yeah. she's just to have that kind of protagonist who knows yeah. what she wants but doesn't quite know how she's gonna get there yeah 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 um and musically what was that collaboration like with Amy Watch how did that come about first of all uh, well originally originally I wanted it to be an opera that's what I wanted. I wanted a, like a, a how do you make opera for young people? So that's what it was going to be. And because WNO were like five years in the planning, they said, oh, we haven't got anything slot available even to even research it. So I put, I knocked that on the head then. And then I'd been listening to a uh, country singer called Casey Musgraves, who's amazing. Yes. So I wrote to Casey Musgraves and said, would you mind, would you fancy writing the music for this? had no reply, so I was like, oh, right, fine. And I was speaking to Angela Gould at RCT Theatres, and I said, I want this to be country and western music. And she said, well, why don't you ask Amy Wodge? She writes music. 
and I was like, and I had heard of Amy as an actress and an actor muso because that's what she did up in Clyde, you know. And, I, and so I thought, oh, okay. So I email Amy and I tell her the idea and she says, yeah, when do you want to meet? And because she loves musical theatre and she loves country music, she just jumped at it, really. So we met a chapter, and I think the day we met in chapter, she came in wearing a top inside out. Right. And I was thinking, oh, my God, this girl is crazy. You know, she's just, you know, yeah. she's like mad. But she just didn't care, didn't care. She's just got this whirlwind about mm. her. And again, one of those people who can just, like, amazingly talented. I can't tell you. You know, and so she just set about. I write. I would write a page of dialogue. I'd send it to her and say, "This needs to be." I think. I think I'd, I'd written half the script. I think so. I sent that to her first, and then I said, "This could be a song. This could be a song. This could be a song." But did you know where the songs were dramatically at that point? Roughly, yeah. Roughly, yeah. You know, it's like when dialogue is just going round and round and round in circles. Yeah. You think that's a song. We need to cut this dialogue out and put a song in yeah. there. Um, and she wrote, well, you know, we all know how brilliant she is. So it's mm. like, I, you know, what a gift. What a gift, really. And um, did, when you started creating it, did you expect it to go on to be the success that it has been? Did it? Did you feel how powerful a show that it could be? When I... It's, it's weird, because I did a workshop with it first. I knew then when, when I... You know, the way, the way actors respond to the script, you know, and the way they, they engaged with it, I sort of knew, oh, OK, it could be on something here. When I heard Amy's first song, Needing Me... It broke my heart and I just thought oh my god this is as good as anything that's in the charts so I thought yeah we're you know this is okay uh, you know we're on to something here um it's funny because I am extremely proud of that show but I don't think it's done I don't think it's done yet I think it needs to do more right. I think there's more fi- I think there's, fi- there's there's another future for that show definitely because the story still needs to be told do you think it has adaptation potentials to other mediums yeah because you know we've spoken about this before you know i've written it with um i write using save the cat save the cat is a screenplay it's a film writing package and it does and lots of people have said to me oh it feels like a film feels like a film Mm. so for me no, I didn't write it with the intention of it being a film. But when I look at it, I think, yeah, this could be a film. Because it, of the rhythms that are in that script writing package. Mm. Um, can I just stop you for one second? I've just yes. got to go downstairs because my tea is ready and I just want to put it on hold. Do you mind? I shall pause the... Yeah, I the storm. Sorry, we were talking. And uh, what, what kind of response do you get from... Young people and teachers and things like that. Oh, it was amazing. It was, it was like, you know, we, we did it, we did it, we performed the schools first. Um, and that was like incredible. But then when we went on the tour, I think we opened in Edinburgh and the first performance was a school's matinee. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be dire. Like, I don't know, how, you know, I just really nervous. You could hear a pin drop. They was, it was like, they were so with it right from the off, you know. Maybe yeah. it's, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant experience to hear that, to hear that silence of kids just being engaged in something that's quite difficult for them to, you know. Well, I say we think it's difficult for them, but you know they're so perceptive. Um, it was just it's a really an amazing experience, yeah. I think we underestimate what kids are capable of processing and understanding. And so much kids' theatre kind of talks down to kids, but this show didn't. It was on such a a level where they identified with this character, with Emmy. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it was one of those... 
but I think there are lots there are lots of great theatre like that but it's not you in you know I know it's, it's like a children's theatre it's, it's, it's theatre it's just yeah. theatre you know if we, if we start pigeonholing it it'll never be brought up to that to have the kudos that it deserves You're that's right, what I yeah. think yeah yeah absolutely it's theatre it should be yeah. treated like any other it doesn't matter what the audience is um, yeah. What has been the most challenging show to write or direct for you? Mm. Mm. Oh, I, d- <laughs> I don't know actually. They've all got their challenges. I think Tom when we did Tom as a big show, right. that was really stressful. But that was stressful because I knew that we had to sell tickets, you know, because of the way the finances worked for that. That was a really stressful production from that point of view. And also because I had, going into it, you just felt that everybody thought, oh, you're never going to pull this off, you know. Um, hold on a sec. Yeah, among the things, sorry. Um, sorry, um, you may have to cut that bit out of my sentence. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so it was just because the way the finances worked out and, and, and the way that people were looking, thinking she's never going to pull this off, this is never going to work. You know, you were very aware that you had to pull it off. Yeah. You know, so the pressure was quite, quite, quite high. It was quite. You know, so that was a challenge in that respect. Um, I've done shows where I haven't got the vision clear for every person. Yeah. Everybody's working at like a different vision of their of what they think the play should be. That that sometimes, and it's really evident. Then it's really evident. You know nothing gels from like mm. and it's nobody's it's nobody's fault but my own you know the director has to take 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 responsibility there but you just know i didn't i confused things here i didn't i wasn't clear in mm. what i was expecting you know where everyone's not on the same page yeah yeah um um would you change your approach in any way um, I have changed my approach in that now we have creative meetings. Normally you meet because you can't get all the creatives together because they're all freelancers. They're all over the all over the place. You know their availability is is difficult. But I I make a point now of basically getting all the creatives in the room very early on, so that we all sit down and I basically will say, this is how I this is what I want it to look like. So the lighting designer, the AD, the the uh, designer, the sound designer, everybody's in the same room going, right, this is what the show is. They've all read the script. Yeah. And then I've just got pictures and, and images and things like that. That is really important. Yeah, I bet everyone's working for the same hymn then. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about what you've got coming up. Yeah. You've got show called Operation Judy. Um, yeah. Is um I guess that's a bit up in the air at the moment. Yeah, it is a little bit up in the air. We we're supposed to start rehearsing June the twenty ninth. Um I'm like crossing everything that that'll still happen. We yeah. don't know, you know, we are planning for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I I I I you know, I'm really excited about this one because it's so different to anything I've done before. Where did the idea come from? I was in a party, a New Year's Eve party over in a friend's house, um, Sean Morgan, who I think comes from Llanymddyfri, and he said to me, he said, look, I got your next show. And I was like, oh yeah, what is it? And he said, Operation Jubilee. And I was like, I've never heard of it. <laughs> he tells me the story, and I'm like, oh my God, that's excellent. So I think he gave me the book, I think. Um, Lynn Ebenezer wrote a book about it. Right. And 
So I read that and I was like, yeah, this is this is great. Like, this is going to be good. For people who don't know anything about it, um, how would you kind of summarise what it was about? Operation Julie is the, the police investigation of the biggest LSD drugs bust in the world at the time, in 1977. And it all happened in Tregaron, West Wales. So it's quite, quite a bit, in terms of scale, it's massive, theatrically. So how, yeah, how are you yeah. kind of managing that? Well, I, you know, the story is, is like you said, it's really expansive, it's international. You know, this, this chemical was being produced in West Wales and then doled out all over the world. Amsterdam, you know, we just went everywhere, America, South Africa, you know, all over the place. But what, you know, I'm always aware of is that one, my audience, my audience is a Welsh audience in this specific case. Mm -hmm. They want to know what the Welsh element of this is. They want to know where, where do they play a part in this? So I focus it down on Tregaron, Aberystwyth, Llandewi Brevi, where that basically was where it all happened. I then look at the characters and, you know, you could... Like there's, I don't know, there must be about 60, 70 individuals involved in all of this. Some of them knew each other, some of them didn't, right? So you, you, you're never going to do a show with, with 70 characters in it. You're just not going to, you know, you can afford it. You just confuse things. So I really focused down on my key characters for it, and that's what I've done. I've basically been very, very um, economic mm. with the story, not not economic with the story, but with the character's place within the story. Was it hard to find a protagonist? Yeah, because in a way, you see, for me, there's almost like three there. And so you've got to decide. You could do that. You could have three three protagonists going through. But it gets really complicated then. Mm. Um, and I, it, the story is really convoluted. There's a lot of... Um, coincidences, there's a lot of serendipity in there and you've got to keep the audience on track so you've got to make it as simple as possible. Then you can start colouring in a little bit but you've got to keep that thread um, yeah. clean really and that's why you know, and it, it's the easiest thing in the world is to find a character that there's loads of information on you know, it's great if you can actually meet that character and get all his stories and things like that. But I chose somebody that did there who's basically disappeared off the face of the earth. There's very little written about him. He hasn't said anything about it. You've only got the court papers and um, books that have been written about the situation which mention him in it. He, so I've chosen him as the main character because I think his message is so relevant to today's audience mm. and, to, and, and for people to hear that story. Yeah. And uh, what were the kind of challenges of adapting, like in terms of an adaptation, um, when, what's your adi when you're looking at adapting something, in this case, a historical event, does it start with intensive research? You need to yeah. kind of map out all the events. Do you start with events? Yeah, I start with a timeline. Start very much start with a timeline and then try and track that through. I'm very much a person that needs to be in the area where it happens, so I do a lot of research in the area. Driving around, getting a sense of geography, is really important with this play. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Aberystwyth Library. Yeah. Yeah, so I sort of, sort of, um, spent a lot of time in Aberystwyth Library. Um, yes, yeah, so, that, so that I can get as much information as possible from that area. Then you find the characters. So then you, you come across people that were major players in it. 
and you find them it's like detective work there which i love yeah um like finding them on facebook or whatever <laughs> and contacting them and saying hi i'm thinking of doing a prog rock musical about operation julie can i come and speak to you some of them will say no absolutely not and then some of them will go yeah yeah of course of course no you have to find one key person who introduces you to everybody else yeah it is very much like drugs i suppose isn't it? do you know what i mean this yeah. is like a little bit like that you know going um, down I've met, I've met incredible people very very knowledgeable people that have shared their files with me you know they they have researched they've shared their research with me you know that is yeah that generosity is amazing and that wanting to contribute to what you're trying to create and yeah. do you feel a uh the um an obligation or a duty to do them justice because they're real people. Yes, so I've sent the script out to the people that are involved. The family, if they're not alive, have sent it to their children for them to read it, for them to tell me if there's anything that they feel they're not happy with or, no, my father wouldn't have done that. Mm. Then I've had those notes back now. I've had a lot of those notes back, so I'll be sort of filled, and they're all great. They're brilliant, brilliant notes, oh, like fantastic good. notes. So yeah, it's just going to make the thing richer then. Yeah, and is that that's happening Aberystwyth today? Aberystwyth. Yeah, that's right. It's during the week of the Eisteddfod, oh, so third of August we open. Yeah, fingers crossed. Hopefully, if that ends up, hope that ends up happening, I'll pop up to see that. Um, yeah. Finally, what is kind of one piece of advice that you would give uh, someone or, or that you wish you had been given when you started? Yeah, I think it would be um, that thing of nobody knows anything. Mm. You know, it's like... You, you know, I've met some amazing people, you know, West End producers, things like that. You know, the fact that they'll go, mm, don't know, don't know what that is. I haven't got the answer for that. Yeah. You no, know, there's, it's, the not knowing is, is the fun part of it. You know, just put your hands up and go, I don't know it, don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out, you know. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. You, you can't have all the answers. It's impossible. Thank you, Jane. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.